Welcome back to Curbside Consults. Hello, my name is Leslie Chang, and I'm one of the New England Journal of Medicine Editorial Fellows for the 2021-2022 academic year. This episode is a continuation of the series we are doing focused on discussing new practice-changing guidelines. Through these episodes, we hope to share some insights into how guidelines are developed and high-yield clinical pearls about the application of these guidelines to our day-to-day clinical practice. Today, we will be discussing the recently published guideline updates on the management of venous thromboembolic disease, or VTE. These guidelines were developed by the American College of Chest Physicians and published in the journal Chest. Joining us today is Dr. Lisa Moores. Dr. Moores is the Associate Dean for Assessment and Professor of Medicine at the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. She trained in pulmonary and critical care and has completed over 25 years of active service in the United States Army Medical Corps. She is a renowned medical educator, an expert in venous thromboembolic disease, and a part of the committee that helped develop these new guidelines. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Leslie. I'm very excited to be here with you. We're so excited to have this chance to speak with you today. I just wanted to start off to take a chance to ask about your experience as a part of these guidelines committee. What was that like? This is one where I say better lucky than good. And uh, I really feel like I was in the right place at the right time. I've been part of the volunteer chess leadership for many years, and I love the organization. And I got lucky enough to be invited to be part of the antithrombotic guidelines that we published initially in 2012, what we like to call the antithrombotic nine version. I was part of the chapter on heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and it was really eye-opening for me at that time to work with experts in the field and to see how evidence was being applied. I really thought that would be the extent of my involvement. I would continue to work on certain chapters, but in 2014, I was asked by the current president of CHEST and the chair of our guidelines committee to take over the entire antithrombotics portfolio as a volunteer chest leader. That was a little daunting. I kept looking around the room wondering when they were going to say, you're on candid camera, but they didn't. So I have had the reins for our antithrombotic portfolio since that time. And the first real test I had was when we did our 2016 update to that uh, 2012 guideline. And really got my, I guess, much more experience in understanding all the nuances and um, knew that we were going to continue to update these guidelines. And I was excited about that. And what you saw published this year was the next iteration of those updates. Sounds like a wonderful group of people. I'm excited to learn from everyone through these guidelines. In a prior podcast, we actually chatted a little bit about something called PICO questions as being the big questions that a committee hopes to address and find answers to through the evidence. For this new set of guidelines, what were the big PICO questions and what are the big takeaways? That's a great question, Leslie, and and you're right. PICOs are the big questions. The clinical questions are the most important step in developing guidelines, and I don't think we recognize that much. We think it's going to be easy, but it really isn't. Thinking about what the frontline practitioners really need guidance in to take excellent care of their patients. What are the questions that they are asking most frequently? And that led to us focusing on the biggest questions in who should we treat? How should we treat them? How long should we treat them? But then some additional questions such as what do we do about incidental pulmonary embolism? 
are patients with the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome different in any way and should we treat them differently? What options do we have for extended treatment? Gotcha. A lot of the questions that you just mentioned as the big PICO questions, I feel like I've seen a patient with something, uh, a clinical syndrome similar to that and have had questions in my mind about management Mm -hmm. or further monitoring. So I'm excited to take us through a case. And before we delve into that, do you mind just briefly reviewing VTE disease as a whole for us, since we have a wide range of listeners from different levels of training? When we talk about blood clots or thrombosis, we often initially talk about these occurring in the deep veins of the legs. And so those are referred to as deep vein thrombosis. When they break off and travel through the circulation and through the heart into the pulmonary circulation, these are called pulmonary emboli. Now, I think it's important, however, to keep in mind that pulmonary emboli can also form in situ in the pulmonary circulation. They're not all clots or actual emboli, which is incredibly relevant now with all of our patients with COVID. The broader term uh, venous thromboembolism just refers to DVT or pulmonary embolism, PE or both. And we really consider it a spectrum, these two ends, a spectrum of a single disease. Perfect. I think we'll spend the bulk of our time discussing PEs, but I do want to briefly touch on DVTs. I feel like in my own clinical practice, I have a very healthy fear of PEs, but maybe less so of DVTs. What do our current guidelines say about the management of DVTs, and should we have this equal fear of DVTs as we do of PEs? I'm not sure if I would use the term fear, but respect, yes. It is all the same disease, and patients with DVT are at risk for recurrence, just like patients with pulmonary emboli are, they can propagate, they can lead to pulmonary embolism. So we do want to take them seriously. When we think about DVT, I think about three big categories. The first is proximal DVT. And when we say proximal, we mean clots that are occurring in a central vein above the knee. So that would be the popliteal, femoral, common femoral, you know, common iliac, IVC. These should be treated exactly the same as pulmonary embolism. So they're treated with anticoagulation in the acute phase for the treatment period, which would be the standard three months. And at that point, just like patients with pulmonary emboli, we should do some risk assessment to determine if they're candidates for extended therapy or if we can discontinue anticoagulation. Then we've got distal DVT, which are clots occurring in deep veins still, but below the knee. And we approach these a little bit differently because if they don't extend above the knee, they're less likely to lead to pulmonary emboli uh, and long-term complications. They're more likely to resolve on their own, but they're not all the same. So we tend to look at patients with a distal DVT and ask that first question, do we need to anticoagulate them? And if they're at increased risk for recurrence, or and risk for extension. So things that might tell us these patients are higher risk is if they have a significantly elevated D-dimer level. If the clot, although it's below the knee, is extensive, if the patients have active cancer, um, the setting of COVID actually is another one. These are patients that we probably would want to anticoagulate. Things that would say we maybe don't need to would be if it's a smaller clot, if there are very minimal symptoms, and I think importantly, if the patient wants to avoid anticoagulation for any reason. But if we choose not to anticoagulate 
at the initial presentation, then we need to follow them and ensure they don't extend above the knee because if they do, the patient really should be anticoagulated. And in those patients, we recommend serial imaging over a two-week period. The final category is one that I think I really didn't have a lot of appreciation for and we're starting to understand might behave similarly to these distal DVTs, and that's superficial vein thrombosis. And that's the clot that's not occurring in a deep vein, but a vein that's just under the skin. And they don't usually embolize, but they can, and they can extend. And so similar to distal DVT, we need to do a risk assessment. Is this patient at risk for an embolization or an extension, in which case we might consider anticoagulation, although the recommendations are a little bit different in terms of the agent in the setting. But it was another one I wanted to just highlight because I think it's a category that many of us don't pay a lot of attention to, and yet it's fairly common. That's really helpful. I don't really pay much attention to superficial venous embolisms either. So now let's move on to pulmonary embolisms or PEs. I think it always helped me to put any information into a clinical context. So let's start off with a case of Mr. C. So he's a 72-year-old man. He has locally advanced colorectal cancer undergoing active chemotherapy. And he presents to your emergency department with pleuritic chest pain and dyspnea on exertion, as well as an episode of syncope. In the ED, he's noted to be tachycardic to the low one teens. His blood pressure is stable and he's on two liters of oxygen by nasal cannula to maintain his oxygen saturations in the mid-90s. So the ED performs a CTPE and diagnoses him with a PE. So can you start off by discussing how you think about PEs in terms of the risk stratification of PEs? Sure. I think risk stratification is vitally important in patients with acute pulmonary embolism because it helps us determine the setting of care as well as the intensity of care. And by appropriately restratifying patients, we can identify some that actually may do well being treated entirely as outpatients. We also can further divide out patients that, although they need to be in the hospital, might be able to be managed in on a general ward setting. And then a group of patients we may be more concerned about that we might want to have in a monitored setting. And then, of course, the patients that are presenting with massive pulmonary embolism associated with shock are a little bit easier to identify without a strict score. And those patients should definitely be treated in a monitored setting and are most often candidates for aggressive therapy such as thrombolysis. Before I apply them to the case that you've given us, I would say that the tools that we think about are going to be the Ones that are most validated for this would be the Pulmonary Embolism Severity Index, or the PESI, which uses age and several other clinical presentation markers to divide patients into five tiers from low to intermediate to higher risk. There's the simplified PESI, which is a reduced number of items, and they're just a yes-no, a point, no point, although the simplified PESI really is more helpful in identifying low-risk patients. So patients that have none of the items on a simplified PESI are considered low-risk. Patients that have any of them are considered high, and it doesn't really stratify those as among those as easily as the full PESI score. The European Society of Cardiology has a score as well that divides patients into uh, low, high, and then intermediate, and subdivides the intermediate into intermediate low or intermediate high. 
And there are several other scores out there, but those are probably the most commonly used to help us determine how we might initially manage patients with acute PE. And do you mind taking that a step further and considering where our patient, Mr. C, might fit in with regards to the risk stratification categories you just detailed? Yes. So we don't have all of the markers that you might want to know about. So as an example, the European Society of Cardiology score that I mentioned that uh, can be helpful relies not just on the presentation, the clinical presentation, but on cardiac biomarkers and measures of RV function. But we have enough to say already that he is high risk. He is class five. You might assume that just based on his syncope on presentation, but his age of 72 years, the presence of malignancy, the tachycardia, the need for supplemental oxygen, all of that adds up to about 140 points and anything above 125 is considered high risk. So Mr. C would be someone I would absolutely place in a monitored setting and I would consider initial thrombolysis. I'm not sure I would do that right up front, but it would be a question that we would have in the back of our minds. So now that we've talked about low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk category of pulmonary embolisms, what do the guidelines recommend in terms of management of each of these categories? I know you mentioned for Mr. C that you would think in the back of your mind about thrombolysis. Can you discuss a little bit about anticoagulation and which categories you think about pursuing thrombolysis? Sure. So just to step back one second, because you mentioned, you know, the low, the intermediate, the high risk. I think the decision making in the low risk and high risk are a little bit more straightforward. In patients that are determined to be low risk and importantly, have good home circumstances, um, insurance coverage for the medications and understanding of how to take the medications and good follow up, and importantly, no other reason for hospitalization then we would recommend outpatient therapy with a direct oral anticoagulant or a low molecular weight heparin transitioning to a vitamin K antagonist, again, depending on availability of meds and insurance coverage. In the high risk, and by high in this instance, I would say patients presenting with massive pulmonary embolism, pulmonary embolism in the setting of shock, then those patients, if they do not have a contraindication to thrombolysis, should receive that treatment. It's the patients in between that require a lot of thought and where pulmonary embolism response teams have become very helpful in getting multidisciplinary experts together to really decide about the best approach. Because there certainly are some patients in that intermediate group, particularly what the European Society of Cardiology determines as intermediate high risk. So coming in with an intermediate PESI score with the presence of RV dysfunction, although not in shock. Some of those patients will benefit thrombolysis, but some of them will be harmed by it. And it's really trying to, to, to figure out which of the patients are most likely to benefit. And the current recommendations suggest or recommend that patients presenting in shock as I said, should receive thrombolysis unless they have a really high bleeding risk, some other contraindication to receiving that treatment. Patients that are low risk obviously should not. And then in the intermediate group, we do not recommend thrombolysis right up front, which is why I said with Mr. C, I think he's in that intermediate high risk. The PESI score would put him high, but he's not in shock, but I would be concerned about him. And what we learned 
probably the most pivotal trial in that group of patients, which was the PATHO trial, is that giving thrombolysis up front to these intermediate high-risk patients does reduce the risk of recurrence in that short-term period, but it comes at the cost of increased major bleeding and particularly intracranial hemorrhage. And what we found was patients that were able to cross over, so patients initially randomized to receive placebo and not thrombolysis, who then deteriorated and received thrombolysis, overall did well. They had an 88% success rate with rescue thrombolysis. So what we as a guideline panel take away from that and what other societies do as well is that these intermediate risk patients should be placed in a monitored setting, receive anticoagulation, but be considered then for thrombolysis should they deteriorate. And I think in this setting for the anticoagulation, many of us would use IV unfractionated heparin rather than low molecular weight heparin or a direct oral anticoagulant with the thought that if they deteriorate, we are going to need to transition to a thrombolytic agent. And that's very helpful. It sounds like IV unfractionated heparin for Mr. C for now until we figure out which way he's going to go. If he becomes more unstable hemodynamically, pursuing systemic or catheter-directed thrombolysis, and then if he stabilizes out and is able to wean off oxygen, then potentially transitioning him to a DOAC, I think is what I heard as the choice of anticoagulation if insurance covers it for him. Is that an accurate summary? Yes. Okay. And then Mr. C has this active malignancy. Does that change whether you discharge him on a DOAC versus low molecular weight heparin ultimately? No, not really. One of the additional new things we did in this update of the guidelines was specifically separate out cancer-associated thrombosis from pulmonary embolism in patients without a malignancy. We've always made comments on those patients, but we did not approach them as a separate PICO question. And we chose to do that this time because there are several trials now in that population specifically. And what we find is that in patients with cancer-associated thrombosis, that treatment for years, the recommendation was with low molecular weight heparin because the risk of recurrent thrombotic events was lower with low molecular weight heparins than with vitamin K antagonists in that population. When we published our guidelines in 2016, there was some signal that patients with malignancy might do well with a DOAC, but they were not necessarily excluded from all those initial trials, but they did not constitute a significant proportion of the study population. And as I said, now we have studies using the 10A inhibitors in patients with cancer-associated thrombosis. And what we see is that you have equal efficacy to low molecular weight heparin in terms of the risk of recurrent thrombosis, but a beneficial effect of a reduction in major bleeding compared with low molecular weight heparin. So in this version of the guidelines, we do recommend a DOAC over low molecular weight heparin or a vitamin K antagonist. I think with the caveat that I'm sure that you were referring to, Leslie, that patients with intraluminal GI malignancies were at an increased risk of GI bleeding with the DOACs compared to a low molecular weight heparin. When you look at the studies, however, this appears to be isolated to rivaroxaban and adoxaban. That increased risk of GI bleeding in those patients was not seen with apixaban. 
Now the agents have not been put head to head in these patients. So we were a little careful about strong wording, but we suggested that providers consider using a Pixaban in these patients if you're going to use a DOAC, just looking at the rates of GI bleeding in the individual studies. It seems that more and more we're taking up this mantra of thinking uh, to reach for a DOAC first over low molecular weight heparin or warfarin. Are there special populations where you wouldn't think to go for a DOAC first? I think the one population that we would say do not use a DOAC first are the patients with the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. So as, as I mentioned, as we started, Leslie, that was one new question that we brought up because these patients are certainly concerning to us. We know that patients with the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome are probably, if you look at the underlying thrombophilias, these are the group of patients that are at the highest risk of recurrence. And unfortunately, we don't know as much about them in terms of duration of therapy because they were often excluded from trials because of our concern about their long-term risk of recurrence. As the DOACs came onto the market, certainly there's a lot of enthusiasm that they may change the conversation, the way we think about the risk of recurrence versus the risk of bleeding in patients that we might put on extended therapy because the DOACs in most patients have a lower risk of bleeding. So if the risk of bleeding is going to go down and we still get the benefit of preventing recurrence, then perhaps more patients might be candidates for extended therapy. But because the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome patients weren't part of a lot of those trials, we really thought we should look at them separately. And, and unfortunately, there really wasn't any high quality evidence to give us guidance here. It looks like, however, although it's not statistically significant, that there is a signal that if you use DOACs in these patients, they're actually at an increased risk of recurrent thrombosis, both venous and arterial, as compared with uh, the vitamin K antagonists. And in this group of patients, there was no reduction in the risk of bleeding. So the bleeding risk is the same as with the vitamin K antagonists. So given that, we recommended that this is the one group that is not the DOAC first. It's interesting to hear you talk about the data around this population of patients and some of the challenges around designing studies for these patients. So warfarin it is for those with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome for now, for now. So you mentioned several times throughout our podcast about extended therapy. So I think we should move into talking a little bit about how you determine the final duration of anticoagulation. So let's say Mr. C, he eventually gets discharged on a Pixaban and you see him in clinic a few weeks later, a few months later, and he asks you, Dr. Morris, how long do I need to keep taking this pill for? How long should we be anticoagulating Mr. C for? And overall, how do you think about extended phase anticoagulation versus just cutting the duration of therapy short to three months? So how long did you say we had, Leslie, for this podcast? <laughs> oh, in terms of time. I'm just kidding. Uh, I was so like, I could talk about this yeah. one question for days. It is the question in, in my mind. It's why I still... It's the million dollar question. Yeah. It is. It's why I love this field. It's fascinating and it is still evolving. What I will say is we are clearly shifting from a disease specific or disease focus to a patient specific. We know that up to 30% of patients who present with an acute thrombotic event will have recurrence over the next eight years. And because that 
30% is fairly high. In the past, we would recommend that these patients get indefinite therapy, but that was ignoring the 70% of patients that will not ever have a recurrence and were incurring this risk of bleeding while on an anticoagulant. So we now have some better information about which patients are at highest risk. There are things that we know about the patient when they initially present, such as the provoking factors, we like to call it. Can we identify one? A strong provoking factor would be a trauma, a recent major surgery, active malignancy like in Mr. C. A weak provoking might be a long car ride, but they got out a couple times, or a long haul flight, but they hydrated well. We would call those provoking, but they're not strong. And so looking at that spectrum, we know that men are more likely to recur than women. Patients who have a more proximal clot versus a distal clot are more likely. Patients with PE are more likely to recur than those with DVT. And then there are some things that we know about them after that initial three months of therapy, such as their D-dimer level at that time. Is it still elevated? If so, they're probably at increased risk of recurrence. Do they have residual clot either in the legs or now we're even looking at BQ scanning to say is there residual clot in the lungs? Trying to look at those patients and saying, okay, if I can't find a provoking factor and you're a male, you're at an increased risk of recurrence and I should consider extended treatment in you. We should also consider extended treatment in anyone that has a persistent or an ongoing risk factor. So while Mr. C's cancer is active, we would want to keep him on therapy as long as he doesn't have any contraindication to it. The other thing that I think is exciting, we talked about, the DOACs are changing that conversation a little bit because they have the lower risk of bleeding. And now we have studies looking at a reduced dose of DOACs. So standard dose at the initial three months and then reducing it when we go into the extended phase. And that further reduces the risk of bleeding. And it means that there may be more patients that are candidates for extended treatment. Very cool. Thank you for very succinctly and briefly answering that very challenging question. I think that is probably the end of our content here. Was there anything else from the guidelines that you wanted to highlight for us? I just would like to say that what you saw published last August was the executive summary. What you'll see in the print version of the journal was in December is also that executive summary, but also a hyperlink to the full document. I don't know that anyone really needs it other than evidence-based geeks like me, but if you really want to understand all of the discussions that the panel went through to make these recommendations, I would highly recommend looking at the hyperlink to the full document. It really is a very nice discussion of all the nuances and some of the difficulties that the panel faced in coming up with some of those recommendations. Thank you so much, Dr. Morris, for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you for having me again. It was a real pleasure. A few summarizing learning points on the way out. We discussed a general overview of venous thromboembolic disease, or VTE. Briefly, we touched on DVTs and learned that those with distal DVTs without severe symptoms or risk factors for extension can be monitored via serial imaging of the deep veins. Those with proximal DVTs, however, should receive anticoagulation. This was followed by a more thorough discussion regarding risk stratification of patients with PEs into low risk, those who can be treated outpatient, intermediate risk, those with evidence of right heart dysfunction, and high risk, those with systemic hypotension. The anticoagulation of choice are direct acting oral anticoagulants, or DOACs. The exception here is in patients with antiphospholipid syndrome, in which warfarin is the recommended therapy of choice. In terms of duration of anticoagulation, 
extended phase therapy or extending anticoagulation beyond three months should be considered in patients with unprovoked VTE, taking into account risk of recurrent VTE versus risk for bleeding and considering a dose-reduced DOAC. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. Our production team at NAJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also a special thanks to our NAJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hamvik. Curbside Consults is brought to you by NAJM Resident 360, a product of the NAJM Group.